0: Who's ever written the great work about the immense effort required in order not to create? Welcome to the Lucid Shapes podcast with me, Mark Crawford. If you're looking for greater lucidity in a chaotic time, then you're in the right place. Slacker is a 1990 American independent film directed by Richard Linklater, offering a somewhat unconventional look at the lives of disaffected youth, intellectuals, eccentrics, and social outcasts living in Austin, Texas. What makes Slacker an extraordinary piece in the canon uh, of American independent cinema is its absence of a conventional plot or central characters. Instead of adhering to the classical three-act narrative model, the film employs a unique relay structure, in which the camera follows one character or set of characters for a few minutes, before shifting focus to a new set of characters, who are often only tangentially related to the previous. For example, the film opens with a character delivering a soliloquy in a taxi about his alternative reality dreams. I just had the weirdest dream back on the bus there. You ever have those dreams that are just completely real? I mean, they're so vivid. It's just like completely real. It's like there's always something bizarre going on in those. I have one about every two years or something. I always remember them really good. It's like there's always someone getting run over or something really weird. Um, one time I had lunch with Tolstoy. Another time I was a roadie for Frank Zappa. Anyway, so this dream I just had, it was just like that, except instead of anything bizarre going on, I mean, there was nothing going on at all. Man, it was like the Omega Man, there was just nobody around. I was just traveling around, you know, staring out the windows of buses and trains and cars. You know? When I was at home, I was like flipping through the TV stations endlessly, reading. I mean, how many dreams do you have where you read in a dream? You know? After leaving the taxi, he encounters a woman hit by a car and the camera then shifts to a passerby who is interested in the accident, abandoning the initial character entirely. This relay-style narrative continues throughout the movie, never circling back to any of the characters, thereby challenging the audience's expectation of closure or character development. They range from conspiracy theorists and ufologists to artists and amateur philosophers. These characters often engage in meandering dialogues and monologues that touch on a variety of topics such as politics, the meaning of life, and the nature of reality among others. You know about the uh, suppressed transmission, of course. No? Ah, well, this is the uh, 20th anniversary of the moonwalk, you know, and way back there when they given us that one giant step for mankind bit, oh yeah, another astronaut's in the background yelling his fool head off saying, oh my god, what's that over in the crater? What the hell is that? Well, NASA cuts him off just like that. But those of us with the right kind of radios, you know what I mean? Yeah, we got enough of it. The gist of it, what that is a giant spacecraft over in the other crater. Looking at them. That's right. Oh, it all begins to leak out then that the space program is just one giant big cover-up. You know, it's a covert operation between the United States government and the Soviet Union. It's been going on for over 30 years. We've been on the moon since the 50s. The aimlessness of these characters is reflective not just of a generational malaise, but also of a specific sort of intellectual and cultural atmosphere that was prevalent in the late 1980s and early 1990s. It is a film deeply rooted in its temporal and geographic setting, yet the questions it raises about purpose, connection and the human experience feel universally resonant. Moreover, the film's low budget, estimated to be around $23,000, adds to its raw, authentic feel. Shot on 16mm film, its grainy aesthetic and the use of real locations around Austin lend it an almost documentary-like quality. I'm going to explain why I've decided to start a podcast. It's a story about the problem of self-relating, getting the balance right between your own thoughts and the external world. It's the story of a VHS tape I stumbled across nearly 30 years ago now. The year is 1994. The location is a small university town in Scotland. I'm a reluctant 18-year-old law student in my first year of study who should really be studying film, or perhaps even better, running off to make my own zero-budget movies. I'm completely bored by the stuffy lectures on topics such as conveyancing and the law of trusts. Uh, Instead of reading case law, I find myself reading books on abnormal psychology and anarchism. Nelson Mandela has just become the first president of South Africa to be elected through universal suffrage. Kurt Cobain has been dead for a few weeks and less than 0.5% of the world's population are currently connected to the Internet. And it's at this precise moment in my life when I encounter a film that, in some ways, will define my existence for decades to come. The original promotional image used to sell Richard Linklater's Slacker appears to tell us little, an expressionless young woman, wearing sunglasses, t-shirt and a baseball cap, has her hands in her pockets. When I bought the VHS from the local store, I knew nothing of the film's structure or premise and had never heard of the director, even though Linklater's second film, Dazed and Confused, had already been released a year earlier. I was buying it for one reason only, the magic pull Of that word that concept slacker i might understand you're still hanging around with dr emmett brown mcfly now let me give you Nichols, with a free advice young man the so-called dr brown is dangerous he's a real nutcase you hang around with him you're going to end up in big trouble oh yes sir you've got a real attitude problem mcfly you're a slacker you remind me of your father when he went here he was a slacker too can i go now mr strickland Slacker didn't sell itself to me as a high-concept film, but it did seem to promise the unfolding of an existentially potent concept that was of the moment, but not yet fully defined. As I started watching the tape at home by myself, I was presented as all viewers of the film are, with an almost documentary window looking out onto Austin, Texas, 1989. As the hot Texas sun hits these lazy, untidy bodies that we see on screen, F.W. de Klerk has been elected as the final minority rule president of South Africa. Nirvana just released their debut album Bleach, and the ink is drying on the first blueprint for the World Wide Web. In some respects, even in 1994, Slacker stood as a historical document of a moment that had already passed. Just two years after Slacko was filmed, Bill Clinton made a campaign promise to end welfare as we know it. Culminating in his uh, administration's welfare to work reforms um, in the UK, the first student loans were offered, marking the beginning of the end for universal student grants. But I'm concerned. They're coming for our children. They're coming for the poor. Clinton vetoed two Republican bills as too harsh. But up for re-election in 1996, he signed a third. Welfare recipients would have to find work or else. After two consecutive years on welfare or five years over a lifetime, benefits can be cut off, whether or not the recipient has a job. Throughout the 1980s, Reagan and Thatcher had demolished the post-war world of, to borrow LBJ's term, the Great Society the world of expanding civil rights, anti-poverty programs, community action and Colombo. The 1990s saw their successes, both conservative and liberal alike, build the much harsher world of workfare, fewer employment rights, higher student loans and Baywatch. Uh, Back in 1994, I think I misinterpreted Slacker as being in resistance to this new world when, in fact, within its own context, it was probably more of a disorientated response to the collapse of the great society. Every society has its own unique way of organising enjoyment. Although I consciously hope for a more community-spirited, less atomized, and more sociable world, part of me also loathes the idea because I can't imagine myself enjoying it. Um, My personal enjoyment, and note, Uh, I lament this, has basically become fully atomized and neoliberal. Uh, I don't like big gatherings of people where I'm expected to socialize with strangers. I like sitting at home watching movies and surfing the internet. But I wasn't born this way. My personal enjoyment is the product of a socialization process intended to ensure that I fit in with the current economic model as the perfect worker-consumer. Slacker shows us a world in which this rewiring of enjoyment is incomplete, because the process of economic transformation in 1989 was incomplete. The counterculture had exhausted itself and had more or less become a joke by 1989, recycled into a consumerist lifestyle that was no more threatening to the system than Gordon Gekko. In fact, the irony is that we now know that Gordon Gekko was a much bigger threat to the system than the counterculture, but I digress. Someone reminded me the other evening that I once said, greed is good. Now it seems it's legal. <laughs> but folks, you know, it's greed that makes my bartender buy three houses he can't afford with, with no money down. And it's uh, greed that makes uh, your parents uh, refinance their $200,000 house for 250. And then they take that extra 50, and they go down to the mall. They buy a plasma TV, uh, cell phones, computers, uh, an SUV. And hey, why not a second home while we're at it? Because gee whiz, I mean, we all know the prices of houses in America always go up, right? What the original counterculture provided, the original slackers of the 1950s, 60s and 70s with, was a feeling of authentic reciprocal recognition between those who had dropped out of the mainstream. Instead of competing to be the coolest, you and your friends were all cool because you relied on each other for that feeling. And so what happens when culture becomes lifestyle and the anchoring of your form of enjoyment in mutual recognition disappears? Suddenly, you can no longer rely on a community of like-minded others to validate your enjoyment. You're forced to become more and more self-relating, balancing your internal monologue with the external world in a, a singular and proactive way. It's a state of being in which you are fully confronted with the abyss of subjectivity, your freedom to create how you are going to relate to external conditions that you cannot create. Critic Owen Gleiberman said of Slacker that it depicts America as a place in which people by now have almost too much freedom on their hands. But this is nonsense people cannot have too much freedom on their hands what the film actually shows is a collection of people who are struggling to master the handling of their freedom in terms of aesthetic strategy linklater is faced with the problem of maintaining the audience's interest beyond the initial intrigue of the film structure these are characters without arcs that we can follow The most interesting moments of the film are when it presents characters uh, who have a unique take on the relationship between external barriers and the problem of self-relating. Take the Dostoevsky wannabe, for instance, who falls into what Hegel called out as the Stoic Error. With lines like, Who's ever written the great work about the immense effort required in order not to create Intensity without mastery, the obsessiveness of the utterly passive, and could it be that in this passivity I shall find my freedom? The Dostoevsky wannabe successfully identifies the urge to create uh, as an external specter, the intoxicating attraction of, of a false sense of mastery that creating can deliver but he errs by moving from that insight to the claim that the only alternative form of self-relating is utter passivity by contrast the old anarchist achieves a perfect relationship between external barriers and internal self-relating if you're here to steal something you've come to the wrong place nothing much here but look around take whatever you want No one is going to call the police or anything. I hate the police more than you, probably. Never done me any good. He may be telling tall tales to anyone who'll listen about his participation in the Spanish Civil War. But is he deluded? Or is he simply drawing creatively from the external world, anarchist history, uh, in order to maintain an authentic self-relation? He does not blink upon discovering an armed burglar in his home. As someone committed to the thesis that property is theft, he offers the burglar hospitality rather than confrontation. Uh, Unlike with the Dostoevsky wannabe, thought and action, internal and external, remain in balance with this old anarchist. This brings me to the question, why have I started this podcast? The simple answer is that over recent years, as I've entered early middle age, I've been adopting the position of utter passivity. More than ever, we are urged to create, to post witty comments, to make clips, to write something. All the way up to becoming the author of one's own career path, either the gold standard of agency or the apex of delusion, depending on one's perspective. I don't dismiss the appeal of utter utter passivity in the face of this super-egoic injunction to create, but there remains the opposite danger, which is to adopt passivity in a wholly reactive way, refusing to create only because you hate the social instruction to do so. So I've decided to create this podcast because it has value to me. I read a lot of psychoanalytic and political theory. But if you read a lot of theory and don't write anything yourself, what happens is that you tend to get a shapeless, chaotic play of ideas in your head. I can't promise that the contents of this podcast won't occasionally be shapeless and chaotic. But if I put it out there, then my thoughts about the world will be more structured than they currently are. My hope is that through the greatest structure achieved by podcasting. um, I will gain greater lucidity in a confusing time. And so what happened after I watched Slacker multiple times over the course of that week back in 1994? Well unsurprisingly I realized life was too short to be doing something I really didn't want to be doing. And so I dropped out of university But that, as they say, will be a story for another day. Well, if you made it all the way to the end of this first episode of the Lucid Shapes podcast, then thank you very much for listening. I hope you will come back for future episodes. To ensure you don't miss the next episode, please subscribe to the show in your podcast app. And in the meantime, don't stop slacking off wherever and whenever you can. Adios, my friends.